Praise the Lord. This is Andrew Womack, and this is our second tape in a new album entitled Lessons from the Christmas Story for Every Season. On our previous tape, I talked about uh, John the Baptist primarily and took scriptures about the miraculous events surrounding his birth, and we talked about many different things. Probably we focused primarily the major point was on the fact that he was to prepare the way of the Lord, and we made applications of that to our life, that for God's best to happen in our life, things have to be prepared. As a matter of fact, I have a tape set entitled How to Prepare Your Heart, and it's taken from a scripture in Second Chronicles 12:14, talking about King Rehoboam, and it said he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. And we talked there about how to prepare your heart. There is a period of time in seeking the Lord and things. One thing I did not bring out on the previous tape was that in my own personal example, many people have heard me talk about March the 23rd, 1968, and that's where I had a miraculous encounter with the Lord, and it looked like it just came out of the blue. I mean, I wasn't anticipating anything special that night. I had been seeking the Lord, but I didn't know that anything special was going to happen. I just walked into this prayer meeting on a Saturday night at 10 o'clock, and boom, the power of God hit me, and it forever changed my life. My life was totally transformed in one instant. Now, some people have heard me talk about that and think, well, it was just a momentary thing, and it happened. But, you know, I didn't, I'm not saying that I caused it. I'm not saying that, you know, I did this, and therefore God did that. God has a plan for every one of us, but there were things in my life that I did to prepare my heart so that I could receive what God wanted to do. Prior to that, probably 18 months prior to that experience, I just got an insatiable hunger to study the Word, and I started studying the Word day and night and reading through it. I mean, I was a senior in high school and staying up until 3 or 4 o'clock every morning just reading the Word. I did it multiple times. I was seeking the Lord. The Lord gave me a revelation of a scripture from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 in December of 1967. And for about four months, I had focused on those verses, trying to make myself a living sacrifice, asking God for it. So what I'm saying is I prepared my heart and made me receptive to what God was wanting to do. There was about six people, maybe eight people in that prayer meeting. All of them got touched. All of them knew something special had happened. And yet I'm the only one that to this day would reference that individual day. Matter of fact, my very best friend, he also said his life was changed. He would never be the same Both of us became stark, raving, mad fanatics instantly. And yet to this day, my friend doesn't even acknowledge the baptism of the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues. He's recounted that. He wouldn't even look at this as anything special. And I'm not saying that to be critical of him, but I'm saying, you know, there's reasons why what God wants to do in a person's life comes to pass. And a lot of it has to do with whether your heart has been prepared or not, whether the way has been prepared. And that was the ministry of John the Baptist. Jesus needed someone to draw the nation together, to increase their expectancy. And because of it, things happened. I know that I've been to many churches. This one church, 
I can think of in particular, I went for 21 years in a row to this same church. And because of that, there was an anticipation in the people's hearts. The pastor would always build me up. And I mean, when I came there, people had heard stories from what happened the year before. And literally, I could have walked in there and have whistled Yankee Doodle Dandy and people would have been set free and healed because the anticipation was so strong. That all has to do with they were prepared. Jesus ordained people and sent them two by two in front of him into whatever town he came into. And the purpose was to announce his coming, but also to prepare the people to tell them about the miracles, etc. It was a PR thing is what we would call it today. Now, I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm not saying it was Glitz Madison Avenue. There's a right and a wrong way to do it. But nonetheless, Jesus used people to prepare the people so that when he came, he would make the biggest impact that could happen. So we've already dealt with that. And anyway, that's a powerful, powerful truth. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, we start seeing the instance where Gabriel came to Mary and announced the birth of Jesus. And as I said at the end of the previous tape, this to me is one of the greatest revelations that God's ever given me. This is a powerful truth that if you will open up your heart and receive this, this could radically change the way that you receive from God. It could change your whole concept about how God moves in your life. There are some powerful things that we're going to share. In Luke chapter 1, verse 26, it says, And in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. This sixth month is talking about the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. That's what the previous verses were all about. And when Elizabeth was six months pregnant, then this angel Gabriel, who appeared unto Elizabeth's husband, Zacharias, also came and spoke to Mary and announced the birth of Jesus unto her. In verse 27, it says that he was sent to a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, this is very important that you understand that this was a virgin birth. I could spend, again, a long period of time on this, but there's just so many things I want to deal with, and I'm not going to uh, spend a lot of time saying this, but I do want to make the point that the virgin birth of Jesus is essential. Jesus was human because Mary supplied a body for him to inhabit. He had a physical, natural body. But because he wasn't born from the union of a man and a woman, he was born from the union of God and a woman, it was a supernatural birth. It was not a human birth. Jesus was not just a man. Nearly any religion of the world recognizes Jesus because he's a central figure of the human race. Muslims recognize Jesus. The Baha'i faith recognizes Jesus. Everybody recognizes Jesus because it's a historical fact. And they have to admit that he is the greatest example of love that the earth has ever seen. But not all of these other religions are willing to acknowledge that he was God manifest in the flesh. But there's going to be a number of things right here in this passage of Scripture, as well as many other places in Scripture. But there's a number of things that show that Jesus was God dwelling with us. He was not just a man. And that's all because it was a virgin birth. This was not a physical, normal, natural human being who became God-possessed and God just used him. 
No, this was God who literally took upon himself human flesh. And the way that that happened is because the woman provided the body, but the man did not provide the blood. He did not supply the sperm to produce this birth. It was directly from God. God is the one who did this, and that is all wrapped up in the virgin birth. If you have a translation that says that uh, the angel was sent to a young maiden or to a damsel or something, I tell you, I really disagree with that. I think you ought to chunk that, get rid of it. This is very important that you recognize it was to a virgin. It says in verse 27 that Gabriel was sent to a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Man, this is a tremendous greeting by Gabriel. It's very positive. You are blessed. Hail, you're highly favored. You're blessed among women. There's nothing in this that should cause problems, and yet it uh, disturbed Mary. Again, I mentioned this with Zacharias, but any time that something out of the normal happens, when an angel appears, even if he's got something good to say about you, it just causes fear because you recognize this isn't normal. There's a natural fear of things that are abnormal, that are outside the norm. It's just amazing. You know, if you were in a dark room and all of a sudden the light turned on, there's nothing wrong with the light turning on. You've seen a light come on a million times. But if you didn't turn that light on, if it just happened, man, it would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up just because it's abnormal. We have a fear of the abnormal. And so this disturbed Mary. Before I go on, I want to say this, that the angel said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Mary was certainly blessed. What an honor to be the mother of of God, the mother of the Messiah. What an honor. I mean, that is amazing. But I want to emphasize that Mary was not sinless herself as the Catholic Church has tried to represent. They have elevated Mary to a position that the Bible never did. Matter of fact, Mary said that God, my Savior, we're going to read this in just a few moments when she comes to Elizabeth, and I'll point this out again, But she said, my soul doth rejoice. My soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. Mary needed a Savior. That means she was a sinner herself. In an effort to lift Mary to some kind of a status where they call her the mother of God and they put upon her some kind of a thing where you pray to Mary and you direct your prayer to Mary, um, The Catholic Church has actually talked about that she had an immaculate conception, that she was born without sin, that she was holy and sinless, and that is not true. She was a sinner. Jesus went on to say later in the Gospels when he had already started his ministry, there was a woman that came, and she began to praise Mary and say, Blessed is the womb that bare thee and the paps that you have sucked. And Jesus turned around and said, Yea, rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's you and me. Any person who has responded to Jesus' message, who has embraced it and has made Jesus their Savior, is more blessed than Mary. That's what Jesus said. This is absolutely wrong to elevate Mary to some position where you revere her. You could say what a great honor 
as she said about herself, as the angel said about her here. But she was a sinner. She needed a savior herself. She was rebuked by her son. She was told that a person who follows the Lord is even more blessed than what Mary is. So there has been a lot of mis. Uh, information going forth about Mary. She was blessed, but she's not any more blessed than a believer in the Lord Jesus. In verse 29, it says, And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Now, of course, David was not his earthly father in any sense, but he was of the lineage of David. Joseph was a direct descendant of David going through Solomon, But Mary was a descendant of David going through Nathan, another son of David. And, uh, boy, there's there's so many things. I won't take time to do this, but if you want to study it out, uh, there was a curse upon one of Solomon's descendant, Jeconias, and there was a curse because he forsook the Lord. He was a king of Israel, and he forsook the Lord and um, was cursed by God. And one of the curses was that no child of his sitting upon the throne would ever prosper. If Jesus would have been the descendant of Joseph, who came through the line of David that came through Solomon, which included Jeconias, then there would have been this curse placed upon him, and he could not have been our Messiah, and he could not have prospered. But David had another son, Nathan, who never, his descendants never sat on the physical throne in the Old Testament because the line went through Solomon instead of through Nathan. But because Mary was of the seed of David through Nathan, then therefore she fulfilled the royal lineage and passed that bloodline on to Jesus, which was essential for Old Testament prophecies, but she avoided the curse that was placed on Jeconias. And anyway, you learn this through the genealogies that are listed in Matthew and listed in Luke. One traces the genealogy of Joseph through David and specifically Solomon, the son of David. And then the other one traces the genealogy of Mary through Nathan, another son of David. And that's the reason that you see these genealogies different. Uh, I'm not going to take time to go through that, but that really is an interesting study. So anyway, the angel told her not to fear that she would conceive and bring forth the son and he would be great and called the son of the highest and the Lord God would give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. In verse 34 it says, Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Now I pointed this out on the first tape when we were talking about Zacharias, he questioned Gabriel, this same angel, saying, how shall this be, seeing I'm an old man? And Gabriel said that he was in unbelief and struck him with dumbness. Now, here's Mary asking a question, but her question was just simply for information. She wasn't doubting this, but she was saying, how can this be? Because I'm not married. I'm a virgin. How am I going to have a child? And actually, One of the points I want to make here is that it's good to ask questions if you don't ask them in disbelief 
countering the things of God, but if you're just trying to understand. Mary wanted to understand how this would be. And it's very possible that by asking this question and therefore getting a correct answer from Gabriel, it avoided her making the mistake of presuming that, well, this is just going to happen when Joseph and I come together. And that's the way that this child is going to be born. I mean, Abraham made a a mistake like that. He had a promise of a supernatural child being born unto him. And when he didn't see it come to pass immediately, he just supposed that God was going to use Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, to have the child. And so he had an Ishmael, who was the father of all the Arabs, and the entire Arab-Israeli conflict stems from his fleshly mistake that he made. If he would have asked a question of God and said, God, are you going to use Hagar instead of Sarah to bring in this promised child? He might have uh, avoided this problem, and the world would have been spared a lot of problems. There's nothing wrong with asking a question as long as your heart is pure, just trying to understand, not disbelieving. So Mary asked this question, and the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold thy cousin Elizabeth, She hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Now, you know, this passage of Scripture is so familiar to us. Again, because of the Christmas season, we hear this thing read and we draw all kinds of things from this and we talk about how God loved us and how kind God is to come and how he became a child. And those things are true and those are not to be minimized. But there is so much more to this than what meets that surface reading of these scriptures. And for a moment, you've got to be able to go beyond what you think you know about this and really delve into these passages of Scripture. Mary was a virgin, and she conceived this child without a man planting a sperm on the inside of her. Now, how did this happen? Well, probably the normal reaction of most people would be, well, it was just a miracle of God, and they dismiss it. But I want you to consider some things here. I'm going to make some statements that I'll have to verify, and this may take me a while because this is going to counter a lot of uh, religious teaching. But I encourage you to stick with me because if you can get this truth and then apply it to your life, it's going to make a huge difference in the way that you receive from God. The birth of Jesus was completely natural in every sense of the word with this one exception. And that is that instead of a man providing the seed, the sperm, the sperm was actually God's word. Now let me just stick with me and follow this logic. Here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, it says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The scripture here calls the word of God a seed. And this is talking about like a seed that you plant in the ground. But we also use that same terminology 
uh, the scripture does, as a matter of fact, talking about Jesus being the seed of David, the seed of the woman. As a matter of fact, one of the subtle references to the virgin birth. Now, there is a very clear reference in Isaiah chapter 7 where it says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. There's nothing subtle about that. That was a very direct, clear prophecy about the virgin birth. But it's subtly alluded to even in Genesis chapter 3. This is where Adam and Eve sinned, and God was speaking to Eve about her participation in this transgression against God. And he said in Genesis 3.15, that I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. This is talking to the serpent. And it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Notice it was called the seed of the woman. This is about the only time in the Old Testament where a child is referred to as the seed of a woman. This was a patriarchal society, the Jewish culture. The Bible was written to a culture where the man was the head of the home and it was always referred to as the seed of David, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. It was always the man who was referred to. But here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God was cursing the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. And I believe that that is a subtle reference to the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus, that it would be actually the seed of the woman instead of the seed of the man. And so, in again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, it calls the word of God an incorruptible seed. And I believe that what actually happened at the virgin birth, that the angel Gabriel came and announced to Mary that she was the one that God had chosen to provide this physical body for him to indwell, to birth this physical body that God could indwell. And she asked a question, and the angel said that the way this is going to happen is the Holy Ghost is going to come upon you, and uh, she received it. And when she did, the angel gathered up the word that had been spoken about Jesus. The word of God, again, I go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, is an incorruptible seed. And this angel gathered up the prophecies that were spoken by God. It was the spoken word of God. And the word entered into Mary. And the word became an incorruptible seed. And the birth of Jesus was 100% natural in every way except that instead of the sperm, the seed coming from a man, it came from God's word. God's word was the sperm that entered in to Mary. And that's how she conceived. And this is exactly why the scripture says in John chapter 1, let me find the exact verse, but in John chapter 1 it says that the word became flesh and uh, in verse 14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And there's a number of other times in the New Testament where Jesus is called the word. And he's referred to as the word. The word became flesh. Now stick with me for a moment. This is really important. When God created Adam and Eve, not only Adam and Eve, but the entire creation. If you go back to the book of Genesis, it says, And God said, Let there be 
light, and there was light. And God said, let us make man in our image. And God said everything that was created was created by words. God spoke things into existence. Now, when he created the heavens and the earth, and it was complete, then he rested. And he turned the dominion of this earth over to Adam and Eve. Now, I'm going to say some things right here that are just going to be a little off the page for most people. This is going to be very contrary to the way most people have thought. I've got a six-tape album entitled Spiritual Authority that will go into great detail explaining this. And if you want more detailed explanation, you can get that six-tape album and it will deal with this. But after God created the heavens and the earth, He said, let man have dominion and let them rule and dominate this earth. It says in Psalms 115, verse 16, it says the heavens, even the heaven of the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the sons of men. And what that's saying is that God gave dominion, control of this earth to mankind. And God didn't Take it back. When man sinned and violated his purposes and plans, he didn't just say, well, time's out. King's X. This is not the way I plan. I'm going to take back my authority, and you can't rule the earth anymore. No, that's not what he did. It says in Psalms chapter 89, verse 34, he says, My covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that has gone forth out of my lips. When God says something, it's a contract. It's binding to God. It goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the express image of the Father, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Or you could say by the power of his word. That's the way some translations have that. In other words, if God was to violate his word, the integrity of his word is what holds everything together. He created this world, you and me and everything physical, natural, by words. So if he was to violate his word, the whole universe would self-destruct. God could not just say, time out, stop. This is not what I intended. I'm taking my authority back. He didn't put any qualifications on it. He gave Adam and Eve unconditional control and authority of the earth. Now, there are some scriptures like Psalms chapter 24 and others that talk about the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, etc., Well, the earth still belonged to God, but the management, the dominion of it was given to man. And so when man committed treason against God and sold out to the devil, even though that was not God's plan, it was within man's right to do that. It was his right. It was his choice to turn the control, the dominion of the earth over to the devil or not. So he did it and God could not by his holy nature, to uphold his covenant that he had spoken. He could not come down and just stop it and reverse things. Boy, that is an awesome truth. And if you would just think about this a minute, that's the reason that after the fall of Adam and Eve, it took about 4,000 years for Jesus to come upon the scene. It says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that when the fullness of times was come. In other words, if Jesus would have come prior to the time that he was born, it wouldn't have been ripe. It wouldn't have been the time. It wasn't the fullness of time. Why did it take 4,000 years? 
Well, one of the reasons is because originally God spoke the physical body of Adam into existence. But now he wasn't just controlling things on the earth directly anymore. That dominion had been given to man, and then man gave it over to the devil. And Satan was the god of this world. And it was actually unjust for God to come down and just speak Jesus into existence. Man was the one who had authority on this earth, physical human beings. And so God had to speak through men. And the reason it took 4,000 years is because no one man could yield to God to the degree that they needed to, to just speak forth these things and cause them to come to pass. So instead, God had to use many different people. I mean, Balaam was even a prophet that spoke about the star and the scepter of Israel and how it would rule. And God used Balaam to prophesy some things concerning the Messiah. Jeremiah prophesied concerning the Messiah. So did uh, Zechariah, Malachi. Isaiah prophesied many, many things. Isaiah is the one who said in Isaiah chapter 7, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, that is, being interpreted God with us. And there were many prophecies spoken. And so God, over hundreds, thousands of years, had to impress things upon men who had the physical authority and dominion over this earth. And then those men would speak forth these prophecies out of their mouth. And then those prophecies were all out there, in a sense, just waiting to be fulfilled. And then Gabriel came to Mary and announced to Mary, Mary, it's time. You're the one. You found favor. You are going to conceive. You're going to bring forth Jesus, the Messiah. And she humbled herself and she said, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. You know what she did? She opened up her heart, not only spiritually, but I mean physically. Her womb was open And the word that had been prophesied about Jesus, all of the hundreds, the thousands of prophecies and commands about the Messiah and what he would do, those words entered into her womb and the word became the incorruptible seed that conceived Jesus. And then after that conception took place, everything else about the birth of Jesus was totally normal. The only thing that was abnormal was the conception process. And it was conceived by the Word of God. The Word provided the sperm, the seed, instead of a physical man. Man, that is powerful. And that answers a million questions for me. There are so many applications of this that, um, again, I would refer you to this tape set entitled spiritual authority and it goes into exactly what i've said here in much more detail makes a lot of other applications there's much more to this than what i've said right here but that's the uh, short version that's the synopsis of it and if you can understand that then that uh, makes a lot of things clear to me that answers a lot of questions i used to ask about god why did you wait four thousand years after the fall of man to bring jesus in The covenant that Jesus instituted was infinitely superior to the old covenant. Why did you let those Old Testament people struggle for 4,000 years? It wasn't because God just had a date circled on a calendar and saying, this is the day, and I'm going to send Jesus this day. 
No, when the fullness of times came, when the prophecies were spoken, when things were right, Jesus came as soon as possible. It was because he had to use people that delayed this coming of the Messiah. And it was because God couldn't just speak man into existence the way he did before. He couldn't create the body for Jesus to inhabit the way he did Adam because he had ceased from that original creation. And this new creation had to come through the authority that he had given to mankind. Well, that answers a tremendous question. And likewise, this also answers another question about why don't we receive the miracles that we want? It's because there is a similar conception process that has to take place in our spiritual womb, in our heart, to receive a miracle from God. Jesus didn't just come on the scene. Why didn't God just, you know, snap his fingers and make Jesus a total person? And why did he have to be born a baby? Why did he have to go through the nine months being carried in his mother's womb and then be born as an infant and grow It says in Luke chapter 2, I believe verse 52, that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with man, God and man. Why didn't God just make Jesus the way he made Adam and make him full grown and just boom, here he is on the scene? Again, I believe all of this goes back to the laws that God put in motion. He did not have the right, the authority because of himself, because of the integrity of his own word and promises to intervene and just create a man. He had to do it through the authority he had given to the human race. And so, therefore, he hasn't created another person. What he did, he took a natural system that he had already created and put into place, and he just substituted his word as the sperm, and then he followed his own natural laws that he created. And the application of this for us is that the reason you don't receive a miracle from God is because we're just waiting on God to snap his fingers and somebody to be healed instantly, completely separate from faith, completely separate from understanding the laws that govern faith and all of these kind of things. And we just think that if God really wanted to do it, he could do it. To me, the virgin birth, the way that it had to wait 4,000 years, the way that Gabriel had to announce this, Mary had to receive this promise and stuff, it shows that God doesn't violate his own laws, his own system. He works within them. And there are laws that govern how faith works. There are laws that govern why people get saved, why people get healed why people receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are laws that govern why people are depressed and why people get free from depression. And it's not a personal decision on the part of the Lord saying, well, I like you and so I'm going to heal you, but I don't like you and I'm not going to heal you. It's not like that at all. There are laws. If Mary wouldn't have responded to what Gabriel was saying, if she would have resisted and said, I reject this, I refuse it, and I will not have the Holy Spirit overshadow me, if she, instead of saying, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word, instead of her saying that, if she would have said, I reject this, man, this is going to ruin my life. What is Joseph going to think? I'm going to be an outcast. I'm going to be talking about this unwed mother and And if she would have rejected it, it wouldn't have happened. She had to receive this word. She had to open up and receive it. And see, it's the same with us. Many of us are praying 
for a miracle, but we don't want to conceive it. It's just like the birth of Jesus. Jesus had to be conceived. And when that conception took place, it was just between her and the Lord. Nobody else was there. Nobody else saw this. You know, I've had two children. Of course, I've lived with my wife throughout this entire process. And even though I haven't physically given birth, my wife has, and I'm aware of a lot of the things involved there. And I know that for the first month or two after a woman gets pregnant, she doesn't even know she's pregnant. I remember the first day that we knew that Jamie was pregnant with our first child because she woke up at four in the morning and wanted a peanut butter and banana sandwich. And she had to have it right then. And I looked at her and I said, what's the matter with you? Are you pregnant? That's the first time we thought about it. And within a week or so, we realized that she was pregnant. She was already, I think, a month or possibly two months along by the time that we began to recognize this. And then there were some other symptoms that went along with it. But my point is that when a woman gets pregnant, did you know that at the very moment of conception, she doesn't even know that she's conceived? Now, she knows that she's had a relationship with a man, but she's not sure what the outcome of it is going to be. And so at the very beginning, when conception takes place, there is no visible, physical evidence whatsoever. After a while, you begin to start getting some of these symptoms. And you know you're pregnant, but nobody else knows it. You couldn't prove it. You don't show. There's nothing visible. You aren't, uh, you know, your belly's not sticking out the way you do when you get later into the pregnancy. And so it's something that you know but nobody else knows. And then as you progress, eventually you begin to show, and I've seen some women that, I mean, they look like they were about five years past due on delivering this child, just huge. And you look at them and think, everybody knows they're pregnant. And then eventually you give birth. And when the child is born is not when that child started. That's not when this miracle took place. That miracle started nine months before, and it has been progressing. And likewise, when we receive from God, there may be a birth time when everybody else sees this miracle come to pass, and they just think, well, instantly you just had God touch you, and you just got healed like that. But, you know, you have to conceive it. You have to conceive it. And in the spiritual realm, the Word of God, you conceive your miracle the same way Mary conceived Jesus. The Word became flesh. The Word of God literally entered into her physical womb and conceived the body of Jesus. And it began to grow and mature. I don't know if this is spiritually accurate, but for the purpose of analogy, symbolism here, I think that this is an accurate representation that it's like we have a spiritual womb. And you have to conceive miracles. They don't just come out of the sky. The stork doesn't bring a miracle. God doesn't just snap his finger. Some people don't just, you know, live carnally and never see God, and then boom, all of a sudden a miracle comes. There has to be this intercourse between you and God's Word. Now, before I finish this thought, let me just say that you can receive a miracle in a sense, totally abnormal from what I'm describing here. In other words, in the spiritual realm, you don't only have to conceive a miracle, but you can have somebody else, in a sense, bring a miracle to you. This is what happens when a person basically isn't operating in very much faith, 
on their own and they go to someone else and they pray for them and then they get their miracle. But that's not normal. I think that the reason the Lord allows that is because if a person gets born again and they're terminally ill, and if the only way to receive a miracle was to conceive it and bring it to full term and give birth to it, if that was the only way you could receive a miracle, a person who is born again with a terminal illness might die before that conception process was completely through. And uh, it just, you know, they would die and they wouldn't be able to receive their miracle. So for extreme cases like that, God has given the ability for people with the gift of miracles, the gift of healing, the gift of faith to come along and pray for you and you can receive your miracle through them. But even in that case, the individual who's praying for you has conceived a miracle. They have conceived that power, that anointing that they're operating in. It grew on the inside of them. And so in a sense, that process still has to work. Sometimes you can have, in a sense, a surrogate parent who will help you produce this child. But barring those exceptions, and that is meant to be an exception, that is not the way that Christians are supposed to live. You're supposed to get to where you can receive directly from God without having to have somebody else carry your miracle for you. So barring those exceptions, you have to conceive your miracle from God. And a lot of people don't understand this. It's just as silly as a person thinking that the stork brings a physical baby. You're just praying and looking to the heaven and you're looking for your miracle to drop out of heaven. The way that God intended for you to receive your miracle is for you to go to the word of God, which 1 Peter 1.23 says is the incorruptible seed. And through your intercourse with that word, through you taking that word and meditating on it, just all of a sudden, boom, the word of God comes alive on the inside of you. The word of God conceives a miracle. And all of a sudden, you recognize that, man, something has happened on the inside of me. I know I am going to receive the thing that I have believed God for. And you know it. You can't prove it to anybody else. Just like a woman, when she's first pregnant, she can't prove it to anybody else. But she just knows. She can tell something's different in her body. And then as she continues along, eventually she gets to where she's showing. And see, it's the same thing. You conceive this and you just know it in your heart. And you tell people and they look at you and say, you're crazy. No way. But then after a while, you are so fanatical about it. I can think of one guy in our Bible college right now who just has this passion for Russia. He has learned Russian. When you ask him how he is, he speaks to you in Russian. He knows he's going to Russia. You know, when he first started that, uh, he was saying, in a sense, that he had conceived something, that God had spoken to him, and that he had this vision of Russia on the inside. But I wasn't sure if it was real or not. You just have to watch and sometime observe. I've seen a lot of students say a lot of things. But after a while, it has become so pronounced in him. He is consumed with it that, you know what, it's like, in a sense, he's showing. Now it's no longer just something that he can perceive, but I can perceive it. I can see that he is spiritually pregnant with this, and he's about ready to deliver. And someday he's going to actually be physically in Russia. That will be the birth of his vision. But I can see these stages. He, through relationship with God, had God speak a word into his heart. He got a vision for going to Russia. He's been meditating on it. And for a while, other people just looked at him and thought, well, I'm not sure if he's just saying that or if it's real. But you know what? Now it's come to a place that everybody can see it. 
This guy's consumed with it. Things are working out. There are miracles. There are things happening. His finances are coming together. And you can see God moving to produce this miracle of this Russian ministry. And see, these same things happen. When a person needs healing in their body, the normal way of receiving that healing is to go to God's word and take scriptures where it says that by his stripes we were healed. God's word is health unto all of your flesh and life unto those that find it. Proverbs chapter 4. It says in Psalms 107 verse 20, I believe it is. It says, God sent his word and healed them and delivered them from all of their destructions. You take all of these scriptures that talk about the power, the healing power of the word of God. You meditate on that. And that word becomes a sperm that literally just impregnates you on the inside. And as you meditate on it, the word, your faith begins to grow and increase in that area. And you begin to increase until eventually other people can see it. That man, you are right on the verge of this miracle. There may not be a physical extension, a protruding. But in the spiritual realm, people can just see that, boy, you have really got it. It's yours. I can see it. You've got it. You may not have it in your hands, but you've got it in your spirit. And then you continue until eventually you give birth to it and you have that thing. But when the birth takes place with a little baby is not when that baby was conceived. It has already been growing for nine months. And, you know, that's the way it should be with receiving a miracle from God. If you understand this, then it should change the way that you receive from God. Instead of you just say, for instance, the doctor tells you you're going to die. So you go to God and pray and ask God to heal you. And then you just sit there and wait and wait and wait and die. And you wonder what's going on. Many people are expecting to receive their miracle from God, but they aren't having any relationship with the word of God that is the seed, the sperm for whatever miracle it is that you need. Most Christians are, in a sense, expecting a virgin birth with no relationship with the Word of God. They're just praying and asking God to give them their miracle. You know, that's just crazy. As a woman who comes up and says, man, I believe any day I'm going to have a child. And you say, well, have you had a relationship with a man? Nope. But you know what? I've been believing God, and I just believe I'm going to give birth. Well, there was only one virgin birth, and you aren't going to be the second. I can guarantee you if you're trying to have a child and you haven't had a physical relationship with a man, it's not going to happen. In the natural realm, everybody would agree with that and say certainly it wouldn't. But you know what? In the spiritual realm, Christians are constantly expecting to receive from God, but they don't know what the Word says. They haven't been meditating on the Word day and night. It says in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, that this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. But you shall meditate therein day and night that you might observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then you shall make your way prosperous and then you shall have good success. Then when you have been in the word meditating in it, when you've let the word of God conceive, become that incorruptible seed and conceive on the inside of you, then you can expect to give birth. But most Christians are just expecting God to move and they aren't spending time in the Word. They aren't doing any of these things. I know that this may sound too simple to some people. But I can promise you that if you have a need in your life 
And if you turn to God's word and find the promises that supply that need that you have, whatever it is, and if you just don't read it once, if you just don't read it twice, but you read it and meditate on it, you focus on it until eventually that promise that is on a page in a book comes alive on the inside of you. The moment that happens, you are on your way to seeing the physical manifestation of that thing. And it may take a brief period of time for it to come to full term and you to give birth. But the moment that that word comes alive, you are spiritually pregnant and it will come to pass. And you will have that child. Man, that is a powerful truth. And since I've understood this, it's changed the way that I relate to God. I used to just pray and ask God for something, and you weren't for sure whether it was going to come to pass. You just were wishing and hoping and praying. But you know, now I've changed, and I've come to realize that the Word of God is powerful. I really believe that the Word of God literally made that conception happen on the inside of Mary's body. She humbled herself, and the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. I believe that. I don't believe that there was really anything abnormal about the birth of Jesus other than the fact that God's word was the sperm instead of the sperm of a man. And it has become so real to me that I really believe that when some of you may not understand this terminology, I'm certainly not trivializing anything or trying to be disrespectful. But when I study the word of God, I open my heart And I let God speak to me. I'm having intercourse with the Word of God in the best sense of that word. And I'm literally letting God's Word interact and plant truths and release life on the inside of me. And there's a lot of people that just don't approach the Word of God that way. They look at it as, well, you know, they would say, yeah, this is the Word of God. They may even try and defend it and say, oh, yeah, I believe every word of it. But they don't spend any time with it. That's like a person that has a husband but never has a physical relationship with him and still is perplexed about why they aren't having a child. Just having a husband and being around him. You know, rubbing up against your husband is not going to get you pregnant. you got to have that intercourse. you got to have that intimate relationship to be able to implant that seed. And it's the exact same thing with the Word of God. Just having it on your table, carrying it under your arm, pulling a little promise out of a loaf thing every once in a while as you walk out the door and reading it as you listen to, you know, a bunch of junk on the radio and singing about falling off a bar stool, that is not going to get the Word of God to working in your life. You've got to be focused on it. There's got to be intimacy with the Word. You've got to get to where it literally just becomes dominant in your life, to where you think about it and meditate on it. It's got to get on the inside of you. It can't just be around about you. It's got to get inside you. I tell you, if you can understand the things that I'm saying right here, what a difference this would make in your life. And to me, I got all of this from this teaching on the virgin birth, thinking about this. And as I meditated about, God, how did this come to pass? A question like Mary asked, not for the purpose of disbelief, like, God, how could this come to pass? I don't understand a virgin birth. It wasn't a rejection. It wasn't a denial or unbelief. It was a desire to understand. 
God has revealed to me that God's word, the angel, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and literally impregnated Mary with God's word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When I saw that, I saw that, man, the same way that Mary conceived is how I conceive a miracle. It's how you conceive. And you know what? Even though Mary didn't have a relationship with Joseph, if she wouldn't have humbled herself, if the Holy Spirit hadn't have overshadowed her, if the Word of God hadn't have entered her, she wouldn't have had this child. It was normal. It was a normal birth. There had to be a union between a seed and an egg. The only thing was that the seed wasn't a human seed. God's Word was the seed. It had to happen that way. The egg that Jesus was conceived from was not a sterile egg. It was fertilized. It was the Word of God literally provided that seed. And it's the same with you. There has to be this interaction with the Word of God. And you have to become spiritually pregnant with the Word of God. Man, I just don't know how to make this any clearer. And yet I know that there's people who listen to this and you'll write it off and say, oh, it's just symbolism, doesn't mean anything. I tell you, this is one of the greatest lessons that you could learn. And if you could understand that, if you could approach the Word of God that way and recognize that when you're reading these words and the Holy Spirit quickens something to you, if you would embrace that and say, yes, man, there's my miracle. I've got it. It's just conceived. And you start bearing that thing around and meditating on it and talking about it, Pretty soon it's going to get to where you know you're pregnant, other people know you're pregnant, and sooner or later there will come a birth. But the birth is not really when the miracle took place. It took place before when you were in the Word of God by yourself, just you and the Word, and you were meditating, and God spoke some things into your heart. I tell you, this is a life-changing truth. It's something that could literally transform your life. And it also just does so many things. There are people today, there is a movement today in the body of Christ that believe that if you just pray hard enough that you can get people born again. You can cause revival to happen. And we've got people today that are praying for salvations for others and things like this. But the Bible says, again, I go back to 1 Peter 1, 23, that you are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God that lives and abides forever. You do not get people born again through prayer. You get people born again through the seed, the Word of God. You cannot get born again without the truth of God's Word coming to you. Now, am I saying that you shouldn't pray for people? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying the prayer is like fertilizer. It's like water. Once you plant the seed in the ground, then you can water it. You can pray that the conviction will come on them. But the seed has to be there. God's word is the seed. And if you want to get a person born again, it is not sufficient to just pray that they'll be born again. You need to put God's word into them. If you can, you go tell them the word. If they've already heard it from you or if you can't reach them, well, then send laborers, like it says in Matthew 9:38. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into the harvest, people who will speak the word of God. Pray like it says in John 14, 26, that the Holy Spirit will bring back to their remembrance things that Jesus has already spoken to them. 
maybe when they were a kid, maybe in church. Bring back to their remembrance the scriptures that they already know. Those are appropriate ways to pray. But most people are, in a sense, praying for another virgin birth. They're praying for people to be born again, and they aren't even including, Oh, God, show them the word of God. Bring back to their remembrance what you've said. Lord, send labors across their path. That's not most people's prayer. They're just praying and thinking that if God really loves me and loves them, he'd just save them. Well, no, God can't save them if they don't open up and receive the seed that produces salvation because you have to be born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God that lives and abides forever. People don't get healed without the word of God. People don't get born again without the word of God. They don't get set free from depression and discouragement without the word of God. And yet we've got people today who are just praying that God will deliver them from these things and they aren't taking the seed and planting it in their heart. That's like a person who prays over barren ground and wonders why they don't get a crop. Their neighbor's got this great garden, and they don't have anything. Now, they didn't plant anything, but, of course, they want something. They asked for it, but they didn't plant anything, and they just can't understand why nothing's grown up. We would look at a person like that and think they're crazy, and yet that's basically what Christians are doing. They're asking God for results in their life, but they don't know what the Word of God says. They haven't planted the seed in their heart. They're just expecting the birth to come without any interaction with the Word of God, no relationship whatsoever. They just want God to do it, and then they get upset and mad at God if it doesn't happen. That's as wrong as a woman who's mad at God because she can't have children, and yet she's never had a physical relationship with a man. You know what? Something is sadly missing in that woman's education. That is not the way that it works. And for people who are mad at God because they haven't got their answer to prayer, and of course they haven't done anything with the Word of God, they say, oh, well, I think the Bible says somewhere. They couldn't even tell you where it is, but somewhere they heard. They think that it says this, and then they don't get their prayers answered, and they wonder why, and now they're mad at God. That's just as stupid as a woman who hasn't had a physical relationship and is upset because she's not pregnant. I tell you, I've said this so many ways, I don't know how you can miss it. You've got to conceive a miracle. And this is how you conceive it, through the Word of God, through taking God's Word, opening up your heart, letting the Holy Spirit overshadow that Word and implant it in your heart, and boom, life comes. And it's just a matter of time until you see it on the outside. But before you see it on the outside, you've got to see it on the inside. You've got to conceive it. It has to become real. You've got to carry that miracle. And there is a period of time. There's a sowing and a reaping period of time. And I tell you, this example of the birth of Jesus is not just a story that we use at Christmas time to make us feel good and to think about how sweet all of that was. And I'm not trying to diminish that at all. But I tell you, this is a powerful truth. It applies to how we receive from God. You have to conceive your miracle.